Warning. The following podcast may contain explicit language. It will certainly contain heterodoxy, political pandemonium, and graphic depictions of alcohol use. Listeners may rest assured that at the time of recording this episode, all participants had nowhere to drive. The Cocktail Party Congress encourages you to drink and think responsibly. In vino veritas. Liberty is too precious a thing to be buried in books, Miss Saunders. Men should hold it up in front of them every single day of their lives and say, I'm free to think and to speak. My ancestors couldn't. I can. And my children will. You know, I'm a voter. Aren't you supposed to lie to me and kiss my butt? Welcome to the Cocktail Party Congress, the only political podcast to our knowledge with a three-drink minimum. I'm J.T. Andrews. And I'm Dan Caves. Well, here we are. Another uh, two amendments for our yeah. listeners. We got another twofer. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a twofer. Uh, we were do- doing amendments five and six tonight. Yep, the fifth and sixth amendments. We figure it's uh, it's probably a good idea to keep it uh, economical for you all, my dear listeners, our dear listeners. You know, so um, yeah, it's it's uh, gonna be quite a heavy. Like we got two of the longest paragraphs in the Bill of Rights here. <laughs> so, yeah, this is it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But they, they go really well together, just like you know, gin and tonic and uh, other such wonderful beverages. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Although we're, uh, I mean, the gin and tonic, that is something for the past, JT. Tonight, though, our dispatch from Mahogany Ridge is instructing us to to inform the listeners of how to make a sidecar. What's a sidecar, yeah, JT? Yeah, a sidecar. Okay. Ah. This, is, this class takes a, it takes a little bit of prep, but not much, mm-hmm. and it's well worth the, uh, the patience and the effort that you put into it, just like any it, cocktail. Yeah, and if I could just add, we're breaking out of our tradition of sticking to mostly, like, gin and whiskey. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like every other drink is a gin drink and uh, the whiskey drink. They seem to sort of alternate. I think we had a one set of episodes where we did whiskey back-to-back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this is a, a refreshing break to people who like neither of those things, which, that's okay. <laughs> so maybe this will suit your taste. It is. It'll at least expand your horizons a bit. Yeah, it will. Uh, this is a pretty bright drink. Uh, it's a very bright, sunny, colorful. Uh, I would say that this is uh, it's a springtime drink, and as it is uh, spring right now, uh, I think it's a good uh, good cocktail to have. What some gonna... places, at least. <laughs> yeah, in some places. Yeah. Anyway, to get get this cocktail ready, uh, what I would recommend is prep your glasses first. Uh, for this, you're going to need a coupe or a martini glass will work just as well. And what you're going to want to do is uh, pop those in the freezer. Get them nice and cold. Or you can fill, fill them with the ice water, which you will dump out before you actually pour the drink in there. Um, and a special thing you're going to have to do is what we call rimming the glass, which is uh, it's similar to a margarita. What you're going to do is uh, this works really well with one of the key ingredients of this, which is freshly squeezed lemon juice. If you take the hull of that lemon juice, uh, or the the lemon itself, uh, you can rub the outside of the glass and then dip it into a, a plate of sugar. 
just to get a, uh, a ring around the glass of uh, sugar with margaritas. You do that with salt. Uh, but it's important to get it on the outside of the glass, not the inside, because you don't want it just mixing in with the drink. You want it to just be on the lip. So if you got your glass, you're, what you're going to need is your shaker. Fill it with ice, and you're going to add an ounce and a half to an ounce and three quarters of uh, cognac. Uh, the, better, the better the cognac, the better your drink will be. Uh, then you're going to add one ounce of your favorite triple sec, uh, and then you're going to take that with your half ounce of freshly squeezed lemon juice. You're going to give it a really good shake, and then you're going to strain it into your rimmed glass, uh, and then enjoy. And enjoy is the operative word because I am I am enjoying the ever living hell out of this thing. Mm. It's uh, it, it's got that. So the the triple sec. I'm using Cointreau. Um, I'm I'm sure that that's one of the more common. Common brands of triple sec out there, and yeah, that's what I've got. Like, yeah, <laughs> and like that mixed with the lemon, it's got this. It's distinctly tart, but also the Cointreau gives it an extra, an extra sweetness. But also, like the orange flavor of the of the triple sec to the lemon, of the, of the let of the lemon. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it. It really mixes together really well, and like you get that that like. It's a very complicated but refreshing drink. I've never seen like refreshing and complicated taken together, but this is yeah. this is one of those. It falls into the line of the the sour drinks. I would I would say it, it is a bit tart, a little mm. sour, but uh, very bright, vibrant, and refreshing. Absolutely, and I'm just I'm just going to add. I didn't know about like going into this. I didn't know about rimming the glass in sugar, and so I have not done that. Um, so I may not have as much sweetness in, in my experience as others, but, uh, all in all, it's a win. Yeah. And, um, oh, and, and actually one, one bit of, one bit of advice that you gave, uh, just offline, uh, in the lead up to this is if you don't want a cloudy drink, get yourself a small strainer to strain the lemon juice through. I made Gets all I made that sure pulp to do that. out of it too. Um, yeah, if yeah, don't put the pulp in if you if you care about like a crisp presentation. I mean, get the fiber if you need it. <laughs> no, but um, no, the 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 sidecar very 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 good uh, double plus good uh, <laughs> decision of drink here. All right, mm. so we've got our cocktails. We are on our third one. Yep, we've got and, our cocktails, uh, and, we got and we've got our constitutions. We got two, yeah, we got in more ways than one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as listeners, you've heard previously, we're talking about the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution and the Sixth, and these are two extraordinarily important constitutional amendments that essentially guarantee our legal system as we know it. Yes, it, it does. Uh, this is where everybody has heard of their Miranda rights. This is that that's where it comes from. The yeah, Constitution, absolutely. the Bill of Rights, and specifically the Fifth and Sixth Amendments. Ooh, and JT, uh, before we read those out, I do want to bring up something. I was doing some uh, background research going into this episode, and uh, there's something, th there's a little piece of constitutional law that is pretty 
pretty important going into these next few amendments uh, known as incorporation doctrine. Are you familiar with that at all? Well, let's educate me and the listeners. Okay, so the incorporation doctrine is a constitutional doctrine um, which uh, it's essentially the the method of interpretation that makes uh, the original Bill of Rights, which amendments are... uh, incorporated to the states so incorporation of an amendment means that a state has as much uh obligation to honor that amendment as at the federal level it's something it's it's like a legal distinction that we usually don't think about we kind of assume that all of the all of the amendments are you know uh they apply to the states just as equally but that's not necessarily the case which is something that i'm I'm having fun learning about now. Yes. So the, the, this helps to explain yeah. why the Second Amendment, especially, uh, why the states are able to set their own laws as long as they don't violate the Second Amendment. They're able to come up yeah. with their own their own gun laws. Yeah. And I, I guess it'll be good to, to point out that um, the, the amendments that we have discussed in detail so far in this series are fully incorporated to the states. The First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and the Fourth Amendment. Every single clause, every every letter, every period, everything about those amendments are fully incorporated to the states. Your state laws have to comply with those. In the Fifth and Sixth Amendments, we are getting into the partially incorporated amendments where parts of those amendments have been interpreted by the Supreme Court. And this is, and this is a... Selective, so it it all kind of boils back to the Fourteenth Amendment. After the Fourteenth, so so this wasn't the assumption going in uh, to the to constitutional law in the early Republic, but after the Civil War and after the Fourteenth Amendment was was ratified, the Due Process Clause of that amendment uh, led the way to the Supreme Court to begin to. Um, interpret the amendments to apply on different levels, and selective incorporation is the preferred doctrine of the, of the Supreme Court throughout history. And the fifth and sixth and eighth, but we'll get to that in a future episode, have been partially incorporated. And just to back up an episode, now at the supreme court level the third amendment has not been incorporated at all <laughs> to the states but <laughs> this is this is mostly this is mostly relevant to to my living situation um there is one <clears throat> appellate court decision relating and and really one appellate court decision relating to the third amendment that does assume its incorporation to to state power but it it isn't something that is uh recognized nationally the second the second circuit appellate court which covers uh, my state of new york the state of connecticut and the state of vermont uh there is one case called Anglum v Carey, which uh is the only piece of significant court uh case law that is a direct challenge of the Third Amendment to the Constitution, and it, it had to do with a—there was a New York State 
uh, correction officer strike during the 1970s where National Guardsmen were called in and they took over uh, employee housing for the correctional oh, facility that was, uh, th- that was in question and it ended up getting to this, this level of appellate uh, decision where it was decided that um, at least for the second, within the jurisdiction of the Second Circuit, so where you're shit out of luck, JT, wherever you're, <laughs> wh- wh- wherever my, your uh, undisclosed un- location is, <laughs> the bunker. <laughs> yeah, the, wh- wh- wherever you 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 call your bunker home, it found that uh, National Guard troops, uh, state militias, do count as. Uh, soldiers under the Third Amendment, that the Third Amendment is incorporated to the states, so should anything come up in the future, uh, that, that this is something that, uh, if it ever gets to the Supreme Court, I'm presuming maybe I'll find out more um, in the future, but like it could be called upon as precedent for that, and so... Um, there is a very limited incorporation of the Third Amendment, but unfortunately, at the federal level, under the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, Third is not incorporated at all. But Man. that is a previous episode's discussion. You, but I, I just found that you, kind of I, interesting. I was going to say, I, you get on my case about bringing <laughs> up the gin and tonic, but you just went on a several minutes about a previous episode. Shame on I you. I know. No, this is Shame on you, I know. I know. No. This is just my nerdiness kind of creeping in. I just I just found it fascinating to like learn a little bit more about incorporation. And uh, so... Just for the sake of our listeners, yeah. Dan and I, we, we watch presidential elections like it's the Super Bowl. Like, <laughs> that, that, that's the attentiveness that we're watching it. I mean, we probably got beer helmets and foam fingers out. <laughs> yeah, w- w- while I'm at my boring job, if I get a push notification on my phone from C-SPAN radio that something significant is happening, I will jump over immediately to listening to that. Yep. So, I mean... I'm one of those people who who actually does like pay attention to C-SPAN for for fun. It's because um, you care, Dan. It's because you I, care. That's what I keep telling myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, JT, I suppose we can begin this discussion by uh, let's each take an amendment. Um, how about you take the fifth? Because I've been yakking. <laughs> And what, uh, you just can... want me to keep, keep quiet the rest of the episode? I don't think so. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. <laughs> no, yeah, please, I'll, please. I'll, I will read the Fifth Amendment to you. You wave, you wave your your Fifth Amendment privilege, privilege, and you will you will read us the Fifth, and I'll follow up with the Sixth when you're done. <laughs> okay, here we go. So, Fifth Amendment. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces, or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Very well said. And the Sixth Amendment, as it goes, uh, reads, 
In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed by the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Um, and like that's that. the Sixth Amendment. I like that. <laughs> yeah, that last sentence especially. <laughs> yes, I can have a lawyer. Yeah. And if I could just butt in one last time, just to talk about the partial incorporation of those two amendments, uh, the only part of the uh, Fifth Amendment to not be incorporated to the states, uh, so they do not have to abide by this technically, although I'm not sure how many don't. Uh, the right to indictment by a grand jury, not incorporated, necessarily. Um, and then for the Sixth Amendment, as I just read, uh, a this is fascinating. The right to a jury selected from uh, residents of the jurisdiction where the crime was committed has not been incorporated. So that's not necessarily something that the state that the states need to abide by, but I'm not sure how how relevant and that will be to our discussion tonight. Well, but no. I thought that was just an interesting little little tidbit like that like a, a little bit of uh, constitutional law that I'll be becoming more acquainted with in the coming years. <laughs> well, let's have a couple more sips of our cocktails and, uh, and just see where the conversation goes. Absolutely. Well, mm. JT, did you have any thoughts going into these two amendments? I mean, we're talking about our legal system here, and um, my my first thoughts were mm. were like, there's a lot to cover here. <laughs> there is quite a lot to cover. Um, honestly, the first things that I I think about when I think the Fifth Amendment is that you're you're right to remain silent if you're arrested for any reason. Uh, you don't have to to say anything because you by doing so, you would be effectively waiving your Fifth Amendment rights and subjecting yourself uh, to possible prosecution. You know anything you say can and will be used against you, mm -hmm. which is exactly what that means. Um, you are pretty much behaving as a witness against yourself in those cases based upon what you say. But if you plead the Fifth. Uh, you you let your legal counsel take care of that, which is guaranteed you guaranteed to you by your Sixth Amendment rights. Sure, uh, you have the right to an attorney, and it it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, you have the right to an attorney. Mm. Uh, which that actually brings up a, a a good question when it comes to public defenders. Public defenders' offices are tend to be uh, overwhelmed. With the number of cases, I mean, certain cases, they might not even be able to look at them too clearly. They might spend about five minutes reading through a single, you know, uh, abstract on the case and just uh, have to do their best on that because they're so backed up and have so many cases to try. So are they really getting a, f a fair legal counsel? Yeah, this is one of those situations where it seems like we're paying lip service, like lip service to a constitutional provision that like um that that's something that you know we like and that's the state hates 
certain amendments. Like the Fourth Amendment is not one of the favorites of uh, law enforcement, and um, presumably for district attorneys and um, you know other you know other prosecutorial uh, power. Those darn uh, kids meddling powers, with my yeah. ability to go into somebody's house and arrest them. <laughs> yeah, but like a, a, as far as like uh, prosecutorial power goes, uh, like that, it, like the fact that you have the right to to adequate counsel is just you technically have to provide that. But you know, public you can technically provide that and still have a horrendously underserved uh, public defender system. Yeah, the public defender system, like. In theory, it is great. Like I, I would, lo- I would not mind seeing public defenders out there, you know, defending people uh, who can't afford it. However, at the same time, people of who have the resources to do so, they can hire their own lawyers, and that lawyer could handle just a single person's case. Like mm-hmm. that, their entire job could be handling one person person's legal cases. Because that person has the uh, disposable income to afford one like that. Well, to go to that point, too, uh, now the question of whether a defendant can afford counsel is something that states have some leeway in in determining. And you could be broke and still, by some, by some calculations, be considered ineligible. For, like you can still be considered ineligible for public defense if 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 by some calculation that is up to the jurisdiction and up to the state i i oh jeez i wish i had i'm i'm sorry listeners i'm i'm not living up to i'm not living up to our standards here but i i wish i had the specifics on this but uh you know uh, there have been cases where where defendants are deemed by the court to not be eligible for public defense when in fact retaining a Retaining an attorney for a lengthy legal case, especially whether, I mean, even, let's just stick to criminal. I mean, civil, that can take 15 years to solve a lawsuit. But even in a criminal matter where it could take months, like months of legal work on the defense side, that can that can cost you quite a pretty penny. And che- On the cheap side, I mean, it could cost you up for like $250 a day. Yeah, you know, just just on the cheap. Now wow. that's why that's why you got to get yourself a good lawyer who will only cost you for a day. <laughs> you know, um, but but just to back up a little bit to the Fifth Amendment. Uh, now, when you read that out and your your statements on it, absolutely true. I think another way to put it. And uh, we can get a little more, like, broad and philosophical with this, is that you're under no obligation to help the state make their case against you. This is the backbone of uh, innocent until proven guilty, and due process feeds into this, too. It's the idea that it is, when you are accused of an infamous criminal uh, offense— it is up to the state to prove that you committed the crime and not up to the defense to prove that you didn't. Proving a negative is always more difficult and often um, quite designed against you to have to do. So it, it really puts it up to the, like, like j- j- just at the basic, you know, 
principle of the thing, it puts it up to the affirmative case against you to, to make their case, and you are under no obligation to make it easy for them. Like The, 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 the burden yeah. of proof lies with the accusers, not Absolutely. with the accused. Yeah. And the reason, I feel like the reason it's set up with, with a little, the reason why a lot of people can sleep at night is knowing that, uh, I think of this whenever I see like the, the very publicized trials where it's like, somebody killed somebody else and it's all over the news and then they get off. Mm. Uh, I'm basically like, well, technically speaking, if the law can protect scum like that, then I really have nothing to worry about. Mm -hmm. Like if, if the legal system worked, yeah, uh, because there was not, there has to be undeniable and without a reasonable doubt that the person is guilty. I, I think those are the keywords. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. So, and those are in criminal matters. Yes, um, those are in criminal matters. Not in, yeah, not so much in civil matters. Yes, yeah, c- civil matters. The burden of proof is far less. And uh, ooh, <laughs> now <laughs> speaking of dance. speaking of your Fifth Amendment protection against self-incrimination, uh, that you can you can refuse to answer questions under that provision. Now. That, that that gets to an interesting difference between pleading the fifth in criminal matters versus something I've learned, pleading the fifth in civil matters, where now this is something that now we're, we're going to get overtly political here. We're going to talk about the president's current legal travails or more, or I guess more specifically, Michael Cohen, his uh, one of his uh, former lawyers. Uh, um, yeah. current travails. Now, so- something I found fascinating is in his civil trial under the current Stormy Daniels uh, situation, and um, I'm, I'm not an expert enough to get into the details of that, but let's just say that Michael Cohen has f- pleaded the fifth on the civil matter because there is a potential that he could be indicted in criminal matters dealing with the payment that he supposedly made to um, Stormy Daniels over, you know, you know the uh, sexual relationship that uh, the president had. Well, the, the, the at the time he was the private citizen Donald Trump. Click, take a drink, uh, and um, all that. But something I found fascinating, and you know, I'll learn more about this in the future, is that. In criminal matters, so here's the thing about pleading the fifth that I think we all can relate to, and tell me, JT, if this makes sense. Uh, All right. Now, when you hear someone plead the fifth, what do you think? I just, I make the assumption that they have something to hide, just just right off the bat. However, like, later on, I'm just like, "Mm, they're they're doing what is going to help their case the best, and that's That's... leave leave it to the professionals. No, that, 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 that's true. When, when we hear someone plead the fifth, especially in criminal matters where we're used to hearing it, it like, we have this, this, uh, we have this intuition that they're hiding something, but technically, when it is pleaded in the criminal matter, juries are instructed against drawing what is known and is as an adverse inference on that matter. You're really not allowed to think that. 
when you're considering the evidence in a criminal matter. However, my understanding at this point is that in civil matters, when it comes time for closing arguments, you you are totally allowed to make that adverse inference about why the why someone like Michael Cohen has pled the fifth. Like when it comes time for it, Michael Avenatti, the current uh, counsel to Stormy Daniels in this matter, if it ever came to it, he could he could actually like instruct the jury to think about why Michael Cohen has pled the fifth. And in the civil matter, they are allowed to 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 consider the potential for why that has been claimed. And that's like right. th- that's a legal distinction that I'm like. It's it's interesting to think about that it really like by the verbiage of the amendment it's really only limited to criminal as far as like your presumption of innocence goes but like you can you can point to someone who pled the fifth in a civil matter and say well why the hell did they do that you know they must have something something brewing under the well Dan and I were talking a little bit before the show about this case and uh uh Dan was saying that uh what Mr. Cohen is doing is uh, pretty much silencing himself in this civil case to avoid uh, complications with his criminal case because he is under criminal investigation right now. Yeah. Um, Which legally is not a dumb move. It's actually a very smart move. I mean, Mr. Cohen is a, is an attorney himself. He, he handles these types of uh, civil cases and, uh, I think he's doing the smart thing. Uh, whether or not he's, he's guilty or not, that's up to for the court to decide. But sure. yeah. legally speaking, I think he is making a right decision. Oh, he's making the smart move for sure. I mean, he, he wouldn't under no circumstances ever ever incriminate himself under the, you know. He's a lawyer. He's too smart for that. He Well, uh, I suppose so. He's smart enough to know his rights, I would say. Like, for sure. Now, one of the more important implications of the Fifth and Sixth Amendments, and um, and part of our responsibility for for keeping them uh, for keeping them alive, is what, when you look at what's promised under there. Look at them. Look at them on the page. They're they're just absolutely beautiful, and they they provide us with so much so much critical information about our our legal and civil rights. These, my dear listeners. And these, JT, are basically our biggest protections against what I suppose I would call the kangaroo court. Yes. Like this, like like the due process that is that is dictated by these amendments is what protects us from show trials. It is. We are protected against you know being. Yeah, exactly. As a show trial, not as a... uh, We're protected by the law. We are not protected by the whims and wists of the masses. We're we're protected by legal agreements between the state and the people, effectively, in our republic. Uh, Although I would... I would advance that a little more and say that we're not necessarily protected by the law, but we're protected by legal actors willingness to to apply the law like the law isn't just stand it isn't like a monolith standing in the way 
of tyrants or anything like that. Like, you still need lawyers to file motions under these provisions and to, 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 to do their due diligence under these provisions to actually keep those protections alive. It's, it's the willingness of our people to, to, um, to continue to honor them. Like, the law itself doesn't protect us. It's, it's our commitment to it that is actually what, what really keeps us, keeps us alive as a republic. I would agree to that. Sure. In fact, I'll even drink to that. Amen. <laughs> now. Mm. Mm, so tart and yet so sweet. I love it. <laughs> um, now, maybe we could talk a little bit about due process because I think that that's, that's one of those terms that's come up a lot in recent... Um, non-constitutional questions like for for instance when when we're talking about something like the me too movement or uh, any of those i mean due process is one of those terms that comes up um as a as a as a counter to some of the court of public opinion moves that are made against uh offenders pretty much under those uh yeah, now i would uh, say that's true yeah for sure uh, do you see any validity to those claims, or do you think that that's something that, uh, in the court of public opinion, that uh, isn't necessarily something that, like, I mean, obviously certain people will have their day in court. For instance, we just saw Bill Bill Cosby, who was kind of the the patient zero of the of the violations that led to the Me Too movement. He was just uh, convicted of many of the worst of his um of the accusations against him he had his dang court and he lost which itself is a kind of a right kind of a affirmation of the the cause there um but do you have any ha- well, have any thoughts of like on that here's what i what i think about this is um i like to think that people are innocent until they are proven guilty mm-hmm. um, especially in a court of law I'm I will believe the accuser's case in many cases um, and just because a court will deem a person innocent it still doesn't make me stop judging that person all of a sudden unless there is like just in personal relations I would say undeniable proof that this person is innocent Mm-hmm. Like, but that's just person to person. Like they, yeah. they have the right to go free. I may not be happy with it, but they do. Um, but it, if they are in fact innocent, then I feel like a lot of times uh, their lives do end up kind of, you know, put on hold. And there's often a lot of animosity towards them, even though they like while the court proceeding is going on. I do, I do think that a lot of if it turns out the person is innocent they just went through all this for you know for nothing they get to go free and get to go Mm -hmm. home at the end of the day but um what bothers me the most like what really grinds my gears so to speak (laughs) is when i see people uh who 
commit the most heinous crimes that one can think of, especially in cases of, of sexual assault. Yeah. When I see those cases, they are tried, they are found guilty, and they then they get incredibly light sentences. Like there was I, a case where I believe yeah. it was like six months this person served. Six months. And hmm. I was just like, that is a travesty of justice. That is an absolute travesty. That is a sign of a justice system that is not working because they were not punished to the full extent of the law. They were, mm-hmm. you know, six months. That's all they got. Yes. And um, I didn't think we would go into this into this topic, but let's do it. Uh, sexual violence is something that, you know, absolutely is, you know, what we're talking about here. And in that case, I mean, like, I have some strong opinions on sexual violence, rape especially. I mean... As do I. Like, like, um, I mean, I... The legalities of it aside, I consider it morally akin to murder, but slightly worse. Because Uh, with a murder, the victim doesn't have to survive and remember the... uh, the circumstances, but with with a violent rape like you might have seen in uh, Bill Cosby's case, uh, Harvey Weinstein is another one who may one day have his day in court. So far, I haven't seen anything of that level, but like that that's a murder where the victim must suffer the indignity of survival. And the punishment for those crimes is exactly quite... Quite often, I mean, obviously, Bill Cosby is probably going to spend the rest of his life in prison, and that's just a that 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 that's a side effect of his his age. But like under other circumstances, like you just cited, I mean, that's just like technically they have been convicted of something, but then when you get to the point of sentencing, and it's just like. It's mind-boggling. There were people that are serving longer sentences for having a couple of ounces of marijuana on them mm-hmm. than this person served in in jail for one of the most heinous crimes that I can think of. And yeah. for that very reason that the the person often survives like it's it's yeah. It's murder without the actual murder. Exactly. Uh, I, 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 Exactly as I said, it's it's murder where the victim must suffer survival, <laughs> yeah. and, and the memory of and the and, memory of their crime. And looking at somebody like uh, Harvey Weinstein, uh, you see not just it's not just a single case. This is multiple cases, multiple, multiple people coming yeah. forward. And I think what made it possible for him to do this for so long is because of the incredible power he had in uh, in the Hollywood, you know, the film industry. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. this was a person who could quite literally keep you from working yeah. keep, for years and years and years. He had that kind of pull. Uh, and he, he exploited it, as far as I'm concerned. Like, when mm-hmm. I see multiple people coming forward with the same stories, the exact same stories, and uh, to me, that that means that he, one day he will have his day in court and it will not go well for him. Like, in my opinion, the man, the man is scum. 
and I hope he get and I hope he gets the book thrown at him. Yeah, the power differential absolutely yeah, makes you, a you, difference here. It's hard to talk about uh, sexual assault without mentioning power dynamics, which I, yeah. I think you see in this case very clearly. If you want a textbook case of power dynamics, it's it's this case. The, I mean, but no, that that's absolutely true. We, though we like, we live in a culture that is, I would say, toxically hyper masculine and mm. and sexist. Like, it, incredibly so it, it runs rampant and the, really what i can say is we it is the responsibility of us as as us as american citizens you as our listeners uh friends family whatever we have to fight it like a lot of us may not be happy about it but it's something we have to fight i think that uh this hyper masculine patriarchy that we have going on here mm. needs to be taken down like mm. this it, we we should not have to worry about crimes like these. Yeah. Uh, or, or at the very least, don't be bashful about calling things out as you see them. Like, I think that's something that we suffer from uh, generally culturally. Like, whatever whatever persuasion you are, I think we just have a tendency to, to look at what we... Um, we play favorites too much and that kind of that, that 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 itself flies in the face of due process is to play favorites in the case of whenever something criminal may have happened whenever an alleged crime has occurred we have a tendency to go light on people depending on what opinion we had of them going in or to go harder on them depending on the opinion that we had of them going in and really what what we really need to do is we need to use the process to its fullest extent and to trust it insofar as like we can we can affect it and keep keep the conversation going in every one of these cases i think sometimes i think sometimes the the question of due process and especially in the cases of um the the, the me too movement and the sexual violence that we've seen over the years is that it almost has a too much of a question too much of an aspect of like wait and see and sit back and don't say anything about the case along the way but like everybody's allowed to have an opinion on these things and i mean criminal proceedings aside part of what our political culture mean and actually no i want to back up and and just ask the question what do we mean by politics <laughs> You know, who, I think it's what and how I, I think there's a very no, I think there's a very, very relevant uh, question of like we kind of have this assumption of a separation of of law and politics, which I don't think is fair to assume in all cases, because what politics now the way I define it myself is. It is the process by which we decide how power is distributed, and power is itself kind of a finite resource. And a political system is going to answer the questions of who is going to have the power, how are they going to attain it, and how are they going to use it. And if you're going to have a political system that is going to protect the likes of Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, any of them, any of the powerful um uh established entities that you know uh 
come about along the course of history. I mean, that, you know, we, we have to have the right to then, another question that the political system is going to have to answer is, how do we change it? And that that's where we really get down to, into the nitty gritty of, um, you know, how we how we decide these things. And uh, that's something that everybody is entitled to an opinion on the matter. And the idea of due process does not necessarily count out the, the power of public opinion on the matter. And like you might see, so let's take the, the case of the president. The president is under investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller. And to this point, the special counsel's office has been very quiet. It's been very, very like by the book, due process, no questions, no comments until uh, things have been unsealed, until decisions have been made along the way. And it's something that you're probably not going to know much about along the way. But then you have the civil matter that's going on with Michael Cohen and Stormy Daniels and all of that, where you're you're having a very public conversation a very public conversation about what has been going on over the years and what the legal uh, what the legal problems are there and what the evidence is. And I think that um, that's an important part of our political process is having the freedom to to have that public discussion about what have the powerful been doing in our system and like, as I said earlier, the idea of due process is sometimes construed to to say that you're not allowed to have an opinion on the matter until it's been decided in court. No, that's, that's not true at all. There has no. to be a distinction. Yeah. Look, I would say that you as a person can have whatever opinion you want about an, an accuser, an, somebody who's accused. You can have whatever opinion you want of them as a person. You can think they're scum. You can think they're, you know, angels manifested on earth. But the law cannot do that. The law mm -hmm. must remain impartial and hear out both sides of the case and then pass its, its, uh, its sentence, pass its verdict. Uh, we can't... Uh, we can't just have these, you know kangaroo courts just determining you know how how somebody is treated because if it doesn't matter how bad the person is or what they did if they did not get a fair trial if uh they they were just subjected to that that showroom uh mentality that kangaroo court if they're just if they're subjected to that it means any one of us could be subjected to that. The next thing you know, yeah. you have you have the Salem witch trials all over again. Yeah. You have people, you know, just your neighbors making accusations and then passing judgment on you just because they don't like you, not because of anything you did. Yeah. And that and that's an important distinction is that like what we're talking about here as far as due process goes is the deprivation of life as you said in the 5th amendment, the the deprivation of life, liberty and the and property. Like Nothing should be done against a private citizen under those circumstances without the due process of law. I, I mean, if you're holding the powerful to account 
in public opinion, I think that the the standard is necessarily lower for that. You know, at, at, you know, as we were discussing earlier with um, the president, Harvey Weinstein, and all these other ones. I mean, and let's not for let's not gloss over the fact that our president has basic <laughs> is on the record as basically being one of the one of the most profound uh, uh, violators of of you know female dignity over over the years. In fact, I mean, something I've been thinking about a lot is it's almost like the the Me Too movement is itself like you can't get to the president on these matters because as we've seen over the course of like the election and over the last few years that he's just like he's Teflon Donald, you know he like nothing seems to stick to him and so. Now there's um, a greater, a, a greater, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a better case for going after the lower level offenders. And I mean, lower level on what, you know, on what level am I talking about? I mean, like their offenses are, you know, whatever the, the calculus is down there, but like the less powerful among them. Now there's more of an impetus to go after the Weinsteins, the Cosbys, all the other actors that we've seen over the years, because now you have to put forward the, the, the sense that this isn't okay. And this is so not okay that we're going to, go after everyone at the lower level to make sure that the person at the absolute top, the capital of our system, the presidency, the absolute, the, the person who was supposed to be the moral leader of our state, of our system, of our republic, is not held to account for these actions, for these things that he is on tape. As saying about what he has done to women. And now what must be done is we must now hold to the fire everyone below him who has ever done anything on the level of him to make sure that we know that none of this is fine and you are only protected by the presidency for a limited time. I think that... The Me Too movement is very much a product of this administration of the times yeah. that we live in. I like it. It might have started with Bill Cosby. I really think it it took off with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, well, for sure. Um, yeah. In all honesty, I think Weinstein was really the patient zero. Cosby was more of a a lead up to it. But I very much think that this is appropriate. This type of movement is appropriate for for this time. Uh, we, I feel like because of the internet, mass communication, the ability to talk with uh, people all across the world in you know just a few clicks, that we suddenly have this diffusion of ideas, uh, this diffusion of of stories, of human stories. And you get people talking, you get people supporting one another. That, I think, is one of the beauties of the Internet, is you find so much support out there for who you are. You find out that people actually do care, and they're willing to back you up. And in many cases, it gives people courage to come forward. 
which I think is, that is something that uh, because you have uh, somebody like our president who is now in power, uh, who is on tape for saying these absolutely atrocious, uh, to the point of being absurd, uh, comments about women, it brings it to the forefront. Everybody sees it. Everybody's heard the tape. And now people are willing to come forward with their stories and make their accusations. And it's the overwhelming support out there is almost empowering to these, to these people, to these individuals. And, uh, I think the movement's going to keep going and I think some really great things are going to come out of it. And I think, and I really hope that we see the right people uh, being taken to court and being given the verdicts and the appropriate sentences that they deserve. I think so too. And I mean, that's kind of what I meant by bringing up Cosby as a, as a sort of a patient zero here is that he's the first to have his day in court. And he is the first to really be convicted of anything like that. And, you know, he's gone through due process. He's gone through a speedy trial, an impartial trial conducted by a jury of his peers and all of that. And it ended in a conviction and a conviction where he will probably spend the rest of his natural life in uh, as put in the film Office Space probably federal pound me in the ass prison (laughs) Um, uh which really isn't funny either but yeah it isn't uh, but you know it's you know it's it's something you can i think there's an irony at least there's an irony there the true litmus test i think of this uh of the me too movement and its effectiveness is going to be when harvey weinstein is put on trial i think if he is tried if he is convicted and incarcerated, I think that it will show that the power dynamics, uh, all of, all of that bullshit, mm-hmm. is over. Mm-hmm. That yeah. it means if this if somebody this big and powerful can go down, the rest of them are. It means that we can take the others down, the ones the that jig are not is, not as big. But the jig is the, up, and the harem is closed. That's yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, if it, yeah, like, I, I that's really the best hope, case scenario. I really hope you know. that uh, uh, the I really hope the courts find him guilty. Yeah, I really do because I don't. I think he really preyed upon people, and I think that mm. uh, he used his position of power, his position of authority, to his advantage. His wealth he used to his advantage in mm. uh, trying to silence these stories and they're not going to be silent any longer. And I, I'm very proud of, of the people who are coming forward with, with their own stories, be it against Weinstein or any other. Um, sure. And perhaps one day the, it might even go with the president to say that the power dynamic is over. Uh, we're, we're done with this. We're going to start taking these cases to court and we're going to start seeing uh, young women, young men, old women, old men. We're going to see everyday people coming forward with their stories and the accused will have their day in court and if found guilty I hope they get the justice that is supposed to be served 
Absolutely. And I mean that that gets to another one of the provisions of uh what is it the one of the provisions of the um yeah, the 5th amendment. So um at the moment, I think like a, as it stands with the president, and let's just stick to this. Uh as a sitting president, um I don't know if the power of a federal grand jury exists to indict a sitting president, but it is something that he could be liable for uh, upon the 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 end of his office, and whenever that comes, finger crossed, JT. Fingers absolutely crossed on that. Uh, perhaps in some future setting, maybe twenty twenty or beyond, um, maybe there will be some justice in the future for some of the things that have. That have come to the fore under ours, under our certain, under our current circumstances. All right, Dan, I'm willing to make a wager with with you. I think I've sure. discussed this before, but if our current president is, uh, let's say, it goes to impeachment, and he is removed from office, if that is the case, uh, it, it's here are the two outcomes: either he is forced out by indictment, by impeachment, or he is, uh, his term expires and he is voted out. I will wager you a bottle of, uh, <laughs> a bottle of Dom Perignon on this. Oh my God. I will take that okay. wager. So I will uh, happily, which, which, which side would you, I'd be willing to give you the side. <laughs> um, okay. So, so let's back up again. Um, so, because I have finished my sidecar, and uh, maybe my memory isn't fully closed. So um, the stakes are, if he is impeached and removed from office, Forci- then I... Yeah, okay. please. Okay, please. For- so forcibly removed or voted out in, a, in an election. Sure. Okay, so... So if it's both of those provisions, I don't know if I'll take that bet because I don't know if he'll be safe from being primaried along the way because... Yeah, that's that's like the third one where we just like split a bottle. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I, think we'll, we'll that, I, I think that's a provision where like along the way, uh, if Republicans start to hemorrhage uh, from his support that, you know, that could happen yeah i think the far more likely thing is that he'll be impeached and removed from office sometime in the next couple of years okay i will say he will be uh vote voted out or like term term expires i was okay just a normal a normal transition for a president okay okay there we go that listeners you have heard the bets (laughs) one (laughs) bottle of dom perignon champagne yep one bottle of dom perignon uh that you know i think that's a fair bet and you know what? Whatever, whatever outcome we have, we'll at least have a tasty treat to to either celebrate or commiserate with one yeah, another I, 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 upon I'm sure upon will. our next in person meet space meeting. <laughs> <laughs> wow. For absolute for absolute certainty, I uh, just I, I just like one of the things that I'm kind of curious about is. Um, uh, with the Mueller investigation, and this is something that might come up uh, and 
something that's kind of being negotiated behind the scenes is whether the power exists to for a lower for a subordinate of the executive branch like Robert Mueller to subpoena the executive. And I'm kind of curious if that ever happens, I'm kind of like that would trigger a Supreme Court battle that could be devastating to the health of our republic. I mean, now uh, like potentially like, keep, potentially. But potentially. Like keep in mind that um uh th- this could be getting a little too nerdy, but so Julius Caesar <laughs> if we go, could go back go, go way if, back. If, if we could go back a few thousand years uh, we 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 have had similar situations to this. My understanding is that uh, so uh, Roman consuls were not uh, liable for legal problems stemming from their decisions as consul during their one-year term as the executive of the Roman state. Uh, but they were liable after they were out of office. And so one of the things that motivated Julius Caesar to essentially invade Rome with his personal army and to uh, destroy the Republic along the way was the prospect of being basically sued into oblivion by his political opponents. And this is... Like, this is a norm that we're dealing with now, and a norm that, like, the president kind of put on the table by claiming that uh, after the 2016 election that Hillary Clinton would have been uh, legally responsible for some of the things that he claimed that were on her conscience. But, like, whether a sitting president can be indicted for, for crimes during his or her term of office, it's like... If the Supreme Court has to decide on something like that, that could go either way, and it could be, like, it could blow away some of the assumptions of our system that it's like, we we really don't want to go down. It goes back to the Nixon argument. It's like, when the president does it, it's not illegal. Oh! Like, it's... That's really what we're going to, and I think that... Pretty much. No, I think that all of our politicians, all of our, um, you know, from the highest to the lowest should be held re- accountable to the law. and with, Ultimately so. Yeah, with the Justice Department, it's supposed to be, it is a part of the executive branch, but it is supposed to be pretty independent. It is supposed to enforce the laws that are on record. So yeah. if, if it'd be like if your boss is violating company policy, is he still liable for, for company policy? Like, it's, mm-hmm. you know, is he still supposed to be held to the standards of company policy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what yeah. we're sort of dealing with. And I think that uh, everybody should be held accountable uh, for their actions, for their behavior, especially in, in political office. And as I said earlier, ultimately so. I believe in maximum sentencing for public officials because they have been invested with the public trust. And when they commit crimes against the against the state essentially and when they commit crimes that that violate the public trust that have been that has been granted to them i think that they like they shouldn't get a light sentence because they you know they were in a privileged position of you know being in an executive office or being a like 
one of the psychodramas playing out on the local level is a judge who has been um, under under indictment for a DUI who has recently just removed from her judgeship, uh, but basically just after she just blew her case over and over and over and over again. It seemed like the system was bending over backwards for her, but like finally it seemed it, finally it came down to uh, the state board coming kind of coming down against her and saying like this is absolutely unacceptable and like it took a couple of years that's been going on but like as a public official i think that she should have been absolutely like utterly uh responsible for uh her mistakes and so should it go for any person in public power i think it should but amen but the supreme court <laughs> might disagree with me well, um, <laughs> it's entirely possible, but, you know, as the famous last words go, there's only one way to find out. <laughs> oh, boy. There we go. I know. Yeah. But. Just remember, guys, double jeopardy, you've only got one shot at it. You got one yeah. shot to convict. Yep. That's part of the Fifth Amendment right there, right? You know, double jeopardy. You cannot be, you cannot be tried for the same offense twice if you're found one way or the other you can't just reconstrue how it's going to be how it's going to be considered oh new evidence go back into it. new evidence came to light saying that the person's guilty well guess what you already tried it you can't really go back and retry it tough shit counselor yeah, that that's that's the way it goes that's the way our legal system uh works for sure and there is there is reason for it like Back when uh, we were under the British, this would happen. People would be accused of the same crimes twice, more yeah. than twice. And as we said in the very beginning of this episode, is the like these two amendments, the fifth and sixth, uh, are your procedural protections against tyranny. And that, what did you just about, do to your microphone? <laughs> I just knocked my my pops my pop my pop filter out of the way yeah. but you know that'll well, happen that, that will we're drunk <laughs> how dare you accuse me of being drunk how d- i know i i, I gave I'll, you that legal advice a couple of episodes ago now it's coming back to haunt you <laughs> i know but no uh, I, I i i waive my fifth amendment privileges against uh against such accusations the sidecars are pretty good huh it's delicious, absolutely. I mean, I yeah, couldn't help mine, myself. Mine's gone. So. so, yeah. Oh well, then. Oh well. <laughs> there we go. Caught you in a caught you in one. Anyway, well, uh, JT, that was. I think that was a lively discussion on our part. This and, covered uh, just about every range of emotion I have in me. Uh, oh, for sure. And and that's kind of the that's kind of the purview of this. Uh, this show is, you know, we're, we're going to work through the through the through the emotions as they come to us as we have these discussions. We're gonna sh- we're not gonna shy away from jack fucking I'm, shit. I'm, I'm not gonna <laughs> say that these uh, that alcohol is like a truth serum at all, but it's more like a a filter remover. Exactly, in vino veritas, JT. In vino veritas, indeed. And I believe in. Uh, oh. Great. I believe. I think uh, I hear the Illuminati calling. There. Yep. Yep. No. They they've been listening in, and they heard our our discussion coming to a 
a solid and natural conclusion. There it is. So, I think it's time to uh, to render a verdict in this case and call this uh, call this trial on the Fifth and Sixth Amendments to its logical conclusion. The verdict and is. Kyle McLeod, we thank you for your music. Darksyland is the yes. name of the track for our intro music. Uh, you can find that, <clears throat> excuse me, and more public domain music uh, or royalty-free music, I would say, uh, at Incomputech. Incomputech. Incomputech.com. Indeed. Uh, and please, if yeah, please mm. go over to uh, Facebook, Google. Uh, <clears throat> Our website, uh, what else are we on? iTunes. iTunes. Go to the big one. (laughs) Yes. Go over, like our podcast, uh, give us five stars because, you know, you're really nice listeners. Yeah. Um, No, give us a good rating because it will help other people find this podcast. If you go on to, yeah, if you go on to Apple Podcasts and more people will find it. If if you give us a five-star rating, give us a decent review, you know, give us a good review. Uh, I hope we've earned it with our with our time here you know i've and, been and know. uh if you have any uh emails that you want to send us anything you any questions any uh comments pithy or not pithy uh send it to us at cocktail park cocktail party congress at gmail.com yes absolutely and uh don't forget your cocktail recommendations we've got a sp- spreadsheet going now it's official we have a spreadsheet of it is we're a bunch of fucking (laughs) nerds but we do want your input and any anything that you have for us we will we will give due process to decide whether we will use it on the show or not and with that here is this episode's Moment of Clarity. In George Orwell's novel 1984, the totalitarian state that rules what had once been Great Britain seeks to impose a new language on its people. This linguistic tyranny, called Newspeak, is designed to render politically heretical ideas, also known as thought crime, functionally unthinkable. If you destroy the vocabulary of liberty and own life, as the good thinkers who belly feel Ingsoc would tell you, then those concepts will vanish in a few generations. Every new edition of the official Newspeak Dictionary would then shrink until the only thought and speech possible was party doctrine. The book closes with a critical essay on Newspeak itself, a fascinating coda since it reads as though it's an in-universe academic article suggesting, although never stating outright, that the political hellscape of the novel was not long for this world. In the essay, the writer offers the only phrase that could have never been rendered into Newspeak. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Thomas Jefferson's words on that matter have guided the American story for centuries, but today we live in a time where no truths seem self-evident. Years of increasing division and polarization have led us to doubt values as basic as freedom of thought and expression, of due process and the rule of law, of civic virtue and individual human dignity, 
Our society and political culture have degraded to the point where lies and misconceptions compete on equal footing with honesty and evidence. When an idea is self-evident, we are tempted to treat it as being beyond exploration, because it's settled. There shall be no debate. Any argument or discussion is ridiculous on its face. Who needs to justify that which is self-evident? But this presents a potentially system-destroying dilemma, because self-evidence can breed complacency, and complacency can breed arrogance. And then the moment that a challenge arises to our shared values, then we risk becoming indignant that we ever have to reaffirm those values at all. The very thought of having a discussion offends us. And then we lose by default. And then we forget how to defend those values. As Thomas Jefferson also once said, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. But let us substitute that blood with ink while we still can. The pen is only mightier than the sword if we use it as such. And we must use it precisely and responsibly. We must tell the truth to one another. Honest speech is the only way of improving our political and social circumstances peacefully. Our culture has sunken into a pit of self-deception, where all that matters is how smoothly we can justify our ideologies, or how toxic we can make our opponents appear. We have all grown too accustomed to wrestling scarecrows of our own design. And the impulse to ignore this problem or to lay responsibility for solving it at the feet of others is real, but under the circumstances, it's a vice. Verbal conflict is a necessary discomfort, not just politically, personally. Try having a, an intimate relationship or a, or a close friendship without it. There is no light without heat. But don't worry, listeners. The heat will not burn you. That light will guide you. Act forthrightly with one another, and listen to what your neighbors have to say. Let their truths illuminate you, and let their mistakes educate you. And then extend the same courtesy to them, the same gift of charity that says, I trust you to understand me. That assumption, that core idea, is what enables social progress. Take careful note of those who reject that assumption and why they do so. Among them are the extremists who poison our conversations and turn us against the self-evidence of individual human dignity. Our republic is not the presidency, nor the Congress, nor the media. The republic is us. It is an expression, a manifestation of our common values. An expression and manifestation of us. It is the result of the effort we put into it, and it is only as good and functional as us. We have not all lived up to our potential as citizens, but that can change. We can turn to one another and tell the truth as we see it. We can test each other's ideas and then proceed together. We can enshrine new values as self-evident and reaffirm those that still apply, and we can avoid the catastrophes and temptations of extremism and radicalism. We can exercise our natural human capacity for self-reflection and self-improvement, and then secure the blessings of our liberal tradition for future generations, 
And with effort, we can all say with renewed, steely resolve that the Republic still stands.